Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Acts. We begin our new series in Acts this morning, finally. I know it's been promised for a while, but we are there today. Why are we looking at Acts? Because it's set in the time period in which we live. Not the first century, not the days of Tiberius Caesar, but rather the period between the ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ. That's when Acts is set. That's when we live. So listen now to the Word of God. We'll read the first six verses. Well, we'll read the first eight verses of chapter one, and then we'll turn to the final chapter and read the end of the book as well. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then turn over to chapter 28. Chapter 28 sees Paul at the end of the earth, there found in Rome. And let's start at verse 23. Paul summons the Jewish leaders of Rome and they come and meet with him in his house arrest. When they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this people has grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears lest they should understand with their heart and turn so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. When he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, show us the certainty of the kingdom. 
Show us, we pray, that Jesus truly reigns. Open the eye of faith that we might see that written in this text and believe it. Help me to speak clearly and powerfully of what's said here to encourage and reassure the hearts of your people. Help us all, free us from distraction, keep us from wandering thoughts, help us, Father, to focus on you and your good word to us this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if Jesus reigns, why has the world run like this? That, of course, is the question that confronted the disciples in the first chapter of Acts, and it's the question that confronts us today. If Jesus is in charge, why are things so bad? That's the question that Acts sets out to answer. We know that this book is about the kingdom of God. We'll look at the further evidence for that in just a moment, but I will just point out right now that the kingdom of God frames this book. It's in verse 3 of chapter 1. Jesus spoke of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and it's in the final verse of chapter 28. Paul was there preaching about the kingdom of God to everyone who came. If it's at the beginning, at the end, then that tells us that everything in the middle is about that theme. This book deals with the kingdom. and specifically reassures us that Jesus really is reigning. Even if it doesn't look like that. Jesus' kingdom really is coming through the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. This book is written to reassure our hearts about that truth. Well, Acts is a sequel. And you're all familiar with sequels. Sequels are very prominent in our culture. The first volume of Acts is what we know as the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is all about, or is framed by, we should say, the temple. Those of you who are familiar with the Gospel of Luke, which I trust all of you are, know that the opening scene after the prologue is Zechariah offering incense. Where is he doing that? Well, in the temple, naturally. Luke 1, verse 9 while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So Luke's gospel starts in the temple with Zechariah burning incense, and the angel appears to him and says, you'll have a son named John the Baptist. Zechariah says, yeah, right. And the angel says, fine, you'll be struck dumb for nine months. To which, of course, John didn't say anything. Well, The Gospel of Luke then ends with this verse. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. The Gospel starts in the temple. The Gospel ends in the temple. And that tells us that everything in the middle is about the temple. 
Now that doesn't make any sense because what is the Gospel of Luke about? Or I should say, who is the Gospel of Luke about? Jesus. Now how can it be about the temple and about Jesus? What are you trying to say, Luke? Well, what is he trying to say? He's trying to say that Jesus is the new temple. The temple is where God lived with his people on earth. Jesus has come. Now, Jesus is where God lives with his people on earth. Luke's gospel is all about Jesus replacing the temple, Jesus having a showdown with the temple. More than half of the gospel is taken up with this journey to Jerusalem. Starting in Luke 9, it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension, or his exodus, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. Why does Jesus have to go to Jerusalem? Because that's where the temple is. And it's in Jerusalem that the old way of God's presence, represented by the temple, which we saw with Solomon, that was a big deal. Solomon is going to build the temple, and God is going to move in and live in Jerusalem with his people. But Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, goes to Jerusalem, has a showdown with the temple, and wins. God's presence leaves the temple. Instead, it's found in Jesus of Nazareth. That's what the Gospel of Luke is about. So Luke starts and ends in Jerusalem. The Gospel starts and ends in Jerusalem. Acts starts in Jerusalem, but it doesn't end there. Acts moves on from Jerusalem. Because, as you all know, verse 8 is programmatic. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and we see witness in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then in the end of the earth, represented by Rome, the great capital city of the world. The church starts in Jerusalem, but it's moved on. We don't feel the need to go back to Jerusalem. All Muslims must go to Mecca in order to uphold one of the five pillars of their Islamic faith. If you haven't gone to Mecca, you have not done everything a good Muslim needs to do. But do all Christians have to go to Jerusalem? Right? Is that right there in Romans 17 or in Acts 29? Or By the way, if you want to be a good Christian, make sure you visit Jerusalem at least once a year. Now that's in the Old Testament. God's people of old, under David and Solomon, were required to go to Jerusalem at least once a year for one of the three major feasts. At least the men had to go. But after the end of Luke's Gospel, after Jesus has had it out with the temple and said, no, the temple is not where God lives anymore. I am where God lives. We don't feel the need to go to Jerusalem. Our Christianity is not missing something because we live in Gillette and don't go to Israel. The church has moved on. The kingdom has moved on. In Matthew, Jesus quotes Psalm 48 about Jerusalem being the city of the great king. 
Luke leaves that quotation out. Why? Because the kingdom is not limited to the king's own city. Yes, Jerusalem is the city of the great king. But the kingdom is going beyond and past Jerusalem. And so if you notice, the the book of Acts actually has a double frame about the kingdom. Look at Acts 1 verse 3. We saw that. Speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. After his ascension, Jesus didn't instruct the apostles further on the finer points of sacraments. He didn't give them, like David gave to Solomon, a set of plans for the ideal church building. He didn't provide them with details about the personnel. David said, here's who will serve in the temple, and here's how many inches wide the door is supposed to be. Jesus didn't say that. Instead, he taught about the kingdom of God. And then the kingdom of God is mentioned again in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So it's mentioned twice at the beginning. Now turn to the end of Acts. How many times is the kingdom mentioned at the end of Acts? Well, Acts 28, verse 23. When they had appointed him a day, many came to him in his lodging, to whom Paul explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God. So it's mentioned twice at the beginning. There it's mentioned once at the end. Oh, and it's mentioned again in the final verse of Acts. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus with all confidence. The phrase kingdom of God appears in Acts only eight times, but four of those are at the beginning and end. Twice at the beginning, twice at the end. Now what's the middle chapter of 28 chapters? Chapter 14. And what's mentioned in chapter 14? This is pretty fascinating as well. Oh yes, chapter 14, verse 22. You could call this the middle of the book of Acts. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So the kingdom is mentioned at the beginning, it's mentioned at the middle, it's mentioned at the end. What are you trying to say, Luke? Right? Do we get the hint? You feel that elbow in your ribs. I'm talking to you about the kingdom of God. My gospel was about the temple. This book of Acts is about the kingdom. And that's why I'll mention it at the beginning, at the middle, at the end... Because I want you to know that the kingdom is the point. So what does Luke tell us about the kingdom? Well, the first thing he tells us about the kingdom, right in verse 1 of chapter 1, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Now this Theophilus is the man to whom Luke dedicates his work. In contemporary books, oftentimes... You open the cover, and you open, there's a blank page there, you turn that, that's the title page, is the next page. You turn that title page, and the page after it might be the dedication. It might say something like, to Joan, or for David. And you say, okay, 
And you turn the next page and there's the table of contents. Well, that essentially is what this dedication to Theophilus is. It's Luke writing to somebody whose name means lover of God. Was it an individual? Is it every Christian? Is it a Roman official? Is it a this, a that? Uh, an elder in one of the local churches? We just don't know. Any more than you know when you open a book and see to Joan who that is. The identity of the one it's dedicated to is not the important thing. The contents of the book are what's important. And what's the contents? Well, Luke says, here's what I talked about in my gospel. All that Jesus began both to do and teach. What's the implication? This book is about what Jesus further did and taught. Volume 1 is about what he started to do. Volume 2 is about what he's continuing to do. Acts is about what Jesus does. He's in heaven, but he's active on earth by his word, by his spirit, by his people. We'll see that that is how the kingdom progresses. Through God's word, through God's spirit, through God's people. Right? Acts is about the kingdom, but it's only mentioned eight times in the gospel. And five of those are at either the beginning and end or the middle. Everything else is describing the activity of the people of God as they further the progress of the kingdom of God through the word and through the Holy Spirit. So we'll see that, that this book is about what Jesus continued to do and teach by his word, spirit, and people. And that that's what the kingdom of God is. That's how the reign of Christ continues in this era in which we live. So Jesus continued to do and to teach things after he ascended into heaven. And the kingdom was the theme of his teaching after his resurrection. Why? Because if we're going to live between the ascension and the second coming, if we're going to live in the time when the king is not physically here, we need to understand the kingdom. The king is gone in one sense. So what do we do now? And that, of course, is the question. You can feel it. You can hear it here in verse 6. When the disciples had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? The kingdom of God used to be a geopolitical entity. Solomon sat on the throne of the kingdom of God. Are you bringing that back? Is there another descendant of David in the works who will rule the kingdom of God from right here in Jerusalem? Right, An unkillable messiah. That'll give Rome something to think about. That's what the disciples are asking. And they had good warrant for asking that question. And what does Jesus say? Essentially, no. No, I'm not going to bring back the situation you envisage. Not going to happen. Imagine how the disciples felt. What? You died? You rose. You can't be killed. 
You can turn water into wine. You can feed thousands of people with five loaves of bread. And you're just going to waste all that? You're just going to go away and leave us here to deal with this mess? And if you've ever had that feeling in the church of what on earth do we do now? Oh no. How do we meet this situation? Well, that's essentially where the church started. It's by getting booted into the deep end. Jesus says, no, I'm not restoring the kingdom to Israel. You get the Spirit. And you witness. Goodbye. And he leaves. And he doesn't say what the time is when Israel will get the kingdom back. He doesn't say how wide the church door is supposed to be, like David told Solomon. He doesn't say who the personnel are. He doesn't spell all that out like it was all spelled out in the Levitical system. At one blow, right, after one single 40-day seminar, the church has to grow up. You guys have to figure out on your own how wide the church door should be. You have to get the personnel to run it. You have to find the funds. I'm not setting up a nation state with a tax system that will provide for the daily operation of the temple. Not happening. Jesus just says, you want to know about Israel and the kingdom. Here's the kingdom. right? And it slowly dawns on the apostles through the rest of the book that Jesus' answer is not a no so much as a reframing of the question. Yes, the kingdom is coming back to Israel because what are they? They're 12 Israelites. And I mentioned this before, the old joke that says we know the Roman Catholic Church must be correct because without Jesus' sanction, there is no way that 12 Jewish boys would have let the Italians get hold of the world's most lucrative organization. Anyway, Jesus says, you want to know about the times and dates, I'm not going to talk about times and dates. There aren't any times and dates in the rest of the New Testament to speak of. We'll see a mention of the first day of the week. That's it. Right, the Old Testament, all the major feasts, The whole calendar is laid out. Here's what you do this week, every day, morning and evening sacrifice, new moons, special sacrifice. Here's holidays. Here's how many things you're supposed to offer in what order on those holidays. All that is swept away. No more times and dates. The Father has set those. He knows them. They're not of relevance to us. Instead, Jesus reframes the question essentially to say the kingdom is coming back to Israel, to you 12 good Jewish boys. In this way, the Holy Spirit is coming upon you with power for witness. And that is what the kingdom is now. No longer a geopolitical entity, but now a socio-cultural entity. Where you go and witness in the power of the Spirit, that's 
the progress, that's the growth, that's what the kingdom is. Don't look for Solomon sitting on the throne of the Lord. Or for that matter, for Peter sitting on the throne of Christ. That's not what the church is. The church is a spirit-powered witness, according to Jesus' answer. Now the rest of it you work out yourself. Your apostles, go. He says that and ascends up into heaven. And we'll talk more about that next week or in two weeks. But at the end, the end of Acts, there's a little bit more detail about what is happening with the kingdom. The kingdom becomes this organization that's spirit-empowered for witness. And the kingdom sees its growth and its main recruitment from the Gentiles. We read this scene at the end of Acts, the final statement of the New Testament in that sense, on the Jewish question. And what is it? The Jews don't want to listen to the message right now. They will. Someday they'll turn. Paul says that later in Romans. But you can see that he's mad, that he's just mad at the end of Acts. He spent the whole day clearly explaining the scripture to them. And some of them believed, but obviously the consensus position was no. Paul, you are a renegade Jew, my friend. We don't believe your gospel. And we will continue to worship in the synagogue just like we always have, and you and your Christ can get over it. That's what the Jewish people told Paul. Paul was burdened for the Jews. There's no one closer to the kingdom in so many ways. There's no one we have a greater responsibility to reach. And of course, there is no one who is simultaneously more familiar with Christian theology and more resistant to it. Message of the book of Acts. Some Jewish people will believe. The majority will not. They'll regard it as an attack on their identity if you try to tell them, come join this Jewish movement that we call Christianity. No, it's not a Jewish movement. It's a Gentile movement. And that's where Acts in. The kingdom goes to the Gentile dogs. We Gentiles listened. Obviously, the church is by far a majority Gentile organization today. It doesn't mean Jews are unwelcome. And I firmly believe that at the end, we will be Jewish-led once again. Right? That's who our Messiah is. He's a Jew. But until that time, which Acts is not going to talk about times and dates, doesn't get into the question of when, until that time, Acts is about the kingdom while the king is in heaven. The kingdom belongs to the dogs. The saints possess it. So Paul ends the book, verse 31, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts shows us the reign of Jesus taking place through the witness of his people by word 
and spirit. No longer a geopolitical entity. No longer is the church an organization where we've got all our feast days laid out, our personnel laid out, our building plans laid out. Church is something different, empowered by the Spirit, progressing through the witness of the apostles and the broader people of God. So what what did Luke write this for? Well, he tells us his purpose. Turn back to Luke chapter 1. The prologue of the whole thing. We didn't read this. Paul says this. Uh, Paul says this. Luke says this about his goal. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which are most surely believed among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. So Luke is not an eyewitness or a minister of the word. He's neither of those things. He's getting this from those who were. And obviously the main eyewitness who was there from the beginning is Mary, probably his source for chapters 1 and 2. But anyway, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Here's the purpose, verse 4. That you may know the certainty of those things you have been taught. Luke wants to reassure readers that this is all correct. The Christian message you've heard, it's true. I interviewed witnesses. I talked to people who were there. Here's what happened. So Luke and Acts both share this purpose of reassuring us about the truth of the Christian message. To reassure us that Jesus truly is reigning, even as we look around and say, but what about that? What about that? What about that? What about that? How can Jesus let that happen? And the answer is always, no, the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus is reigning. Trust him. Witness to him. Work in the power of the Spirit. So I just want to conclude with three quick points. The first is how little we would know without this book. If you subtracted Acts out of the New Testament and you just had the Gospels and the Epistles... You wouldn't know anything about the ministry of Peter. You would know very little about the ministry of Paul. We would have no idea where the church started or how it spread in the early days. The 90 years between the end of the gospel accounts around AD 30 and the first written documents we have from early Christians around AD 120 would be essentially a total blank. What happened? What was the church doing? What was the church like? We wouldn't know without Acts. We take for granted that we know it. And of course we know it. We've all read Acts. But without this book, we would know very little. Secondly, we know that this book teaches about the kingdom. Luke does not say Jesus taught about the kingdom of God for 40 days. Paul taught about the kingdom of God for two years. And never mention what it was they taught. He's not that mean. I've often wondered reading this book. Well, what did Jesus say during the 40 days? Luke, why don't you tell us that? What did Paul say about the kingdom of God in his rented house? Well, 
The answer is that the book of Acts that we have does tell us that. It answers that question, what did Jesus teach about the kingdom of God? And it doesn't answer it by writing down the words Jesus said. It answers it instead by showing us what the apostles did in obedience to that teaching. Here's how the kingdom of God grows. Do you want to know what Jesus and Paul taught about the kingdom? Well, stay tuned. It's what Luke teaches in Acts. And that's what we'll learn. The kingdom, and particularly its certainty. Jesus really is reigning. His kingdom really is advancing. His reign is real. His reign is now. We are privileged to be subjects who submit to his reign. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book about the rise and progress of the kingdom of God. We ask that you would help us to submit to your son's reign. Help us to be obedient to him, to worship him as our king, and to be certain of the truths we've been taught about his rule. Thank you that you are restoring the kingdom, not in the sense of restoring the Solomonic monarchy, but in the much greater sense sending your people out as witnesses to the end of the earth and beyond. Help us as we worship you here in Gillette at the very end of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.